but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hi everyone, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm James. I'm Jonathan. And we are almost at Roland Garros, a mere nine months after the most recent one. It starts on Sunday in Paris. The draws have been released. Folks are getting their last preparations in. But that's not what everybody's talking about right now. <laughs> no, Naomi Osaka's announcement that she would not be doing press conferences after her matches. She released a statement saying, hey everyone. Hope you're all doing well. I'm writing this to say I'm not going to do any press during Roland Garros. I've often felt that people have no regard for athletes' mental health, and this rings very true whenever I see a press conference or partake in one. We're often sat there and asked questions that we've been asked multiple times before, or asked questions that bring doubt into our minds, and I'm just not going to subject myself to people that doubt me. I've watched many clips of athletes breaking down after a loss in the press room, and I know you have as well. I believe that whole situation is kicking a person while they're down, and I don't understand the reasoning behind it. Me not doing press is nothing personal to the tournament, and a couple journalists have interviewed me since I was young, so I have a friendly relationship with most of them. However, if the organizations think that they can just keep saying, do press or you're going to be fined, and continue to ignore the mental health of the athletes that are the centerpiece of their cooperation, then I just gotta laugh. Anyways, I hope the considerable amount that I get fined for this will go towards a mental health charity. XOXO, peace, heart. So, the takes were immediate. They're still coming. The <laughs> uh, this inspired incredibly strong emotions from people, and... Uh, it was interesting that this sort of captured attention so quickly and so thoroughly. There are obviously many, many ways to look at this and react to this statement. And so the discussion that is about to follow is in no way comprehensive. And we can't possibly look at it from all possible angles. But these are some of the things we've been thinking about in the wake of it. I have really excused myself from the conversation just because I didn't feel that one more take was going to do anyone good. <laughs> Except you're here now. Right, right. Which I hope is an opportunity for a more complete discussion rather than uh, here's the truth, according to me. Hopefully we are able to present this one of the few times we can present something from both sides. Well, see, this is where it gets complicated, right? They're not two sides. They're not both sides. You and I aren't really on different sides, but we had different reactions to the statement. I'm talking about the fact that Naomi's perspective can be represented as well as the press corps. Mm. We, we believe that there aren't two sides to every story, that there are multiple sides, right? I'm yep. just saying that this is one of the few instances where we can narrow it down and focus it in this way. Mm -hmm. Naomi did write an email to the French Open itself, and it looked like it was after the fact, after the statement was released, trying to clarify a little about what she meant saying that it wasn't anything personal about the French Open or its organizers, but this is something that she has to do for herself right now. 
She said this is 100% nothing against the French Open or even the press members themselves. This stance is against a system requiring athletes to be forced to do press on occasions when they are suffering from mental health. I believe it is archaic and in need of reform. After this tournament, I want to work with the tours and the governing bodies to figure out how we best compromise to change the system. I feel like this was an important development to it because in the wake of her initial statement on Twitter, there were so many questions left unanswered. Is this something that's going to happen going forward for her? What was the end goal? Like, is there something that she wanted to see done specifically? Were there going to be dialogues had going forward by the people who could make some change? Mm-hmm. And it seems that this is this is what she wants. She wants to have a look at the system the way it currently exists and see if there are any changes that can be made. One of the questions is, why now? Why did she choose right now to make this statement? Um, is there something going on personally for her and she just doesn't feel up to it? I like that in the email she expanded this into a more systemic view rather than thinking about individual actors like journalists. We're thinking instead about the press conference itself, the press obligations, the format of player in front of dozens of reporters. Does this work for everyone? Is it useful? Is it productive? And if not... Where does the conversation go from there? So I think that's a very fruitful conversation to be had. And it's, in general, not one that's happening on social media. I wish what was expounded upon in that email to the French Federation was included in that original statement. Because that would have given more direction to the discourse, I think. Instead, we had a a couple segments in that initial statement that were frankly clumsily written, that left a lot of room for interpretation by folks who have agendas, who aren't necessarily operating in good faith when talking about this issue. The two main areas being Naomi's mention of needing to protect her mental health and the way she talked about that in the initial statement, and also having her initial statement come off as somewhat of an attack on the press. Right. And there are plenty of people online who are champing at the bit to attack members of the press. They don't need an invitation, but they saw this as an invitation to say, well, they ask stupid questions, they're mean, they print clickbait. And in many situations, that is true, right? There are problems with the way the press operates in this sport. And we can see this as an opportunity to look at why that is. And on the other side, there were plenty of people lining up to say, these kids today are just so weak. If they can't do their job, they should move out of the way and let someone else do their job. And that's not helping anyone either. But more than that, there was a lack of specificity with the defining of mental health and it being taken to be muddied with just not feeling well. Right. So one thing that we're not going to do is attempt to get a grasp on Naomi's personal mental health, right? That's something we cannot possibly know. Uh, but there is, I think, you know, there's a way in to critique the the discourse of mental health in 2021. You know, there's, there's a huge spectrum when people talk about their mental health. Sometimes they're referring to clinically diagnosed illnesses or disorders. 
Sometimes it's just about kind of protecting your emotional space. Those are very different things. They're both valid, but it leaves a whole lot of space. And it's not something that we're going to sort of tackle in this discussion. But I think it's, you know, important overall to think about going forward. But because of this, and maybe it would have been the case anyway, folks are being very dismissive of her desire to maintain, protect her mental health, saying that, you know, this is part of the game, this is part of the job. As a professional athlete, these are the things that you sign up for. And I keep coming back to this overriding question, despite all the nuance, despite all the points that are being made uh, by everybody in opposing corners that have validity. I keep coming back to this idea that why should we keep doing things as they are just because that's the way it's always been? Hasn't the last year and a half, hasn't living through a pandemic taught us, if not anything else, that we don't have to do things the way they've always been done just because? Right. The pandemic exposed cracks that we knew were there, but they were now too obvious to ignore. So it gives us this opportunity to look at the way things are and say, well, does it actually have to be that way? And tennis has made many adjustments along those lines during the last year and a half out of necessity to survive, right? So when people say, well, this this is what you sign up for, this is the way it is, I don't accept that anymore. And at first I predicted that there would be a big generational divide in how people responded to this. And I think more importantly than generational, it's a worldview divide. Like, are you somebody who is generally uncomfortable (laughs) looking at systems and structures and recommending changes? Are you happy with the way things are? Or are you someone who sees sort of critique everywhere you look, right? And those are extremes. But some people are lining up in favor of the institution, the way things work now. And others are saying, burn it all down. I think it's also a matter of class and money and how you value money. But I think it also is a generational gap in a way because we know that younger generations privilege personal well-being over personal wealth, for example. And folks might be tempted to exclude Naomi from that kind of consideration because we just found out she made all this money last year, 50-something million dollars, as the, the, the highest paid endorsed woman athlete in the world. But there are things that are more important to people. Her money has given her the privilege to opt out of this, yes. right? Her, her money has actually given her the safety and security to like shake the table. She's not somebody who grew up with obscene wealth, but she is someone who grew up, uh, you know, being a black and Asian woman in a mostly white society. Naomi has already shown herself to be willing to challenge the status quo, to put herself in uncomfortable positions by sharing her political views, right? And her upbringing and her race and her being a woman probably colored the way that she sees the world. And now that she has the security of fame, money, and power, she's continuing to sort of shift tennis's wig. Howard Bryant mentioned this in one of his threads regarding this issue on Twitter, that we're at the one-year anniversary of George Floyd's murder. And that was one of the precipitating events for last year's Black Lives Matter protests all over the United States. Protests that Naomi Osaka participated in 
an experience that that motivated her to try and make change within tennis, to try and attack systemic racism within tennis. After having gone through all that last year, you have folks now saying, well, she did all that last year. She could get through all that. Why can't she get through this? It's just a te- it's just a press conference. And what I want to know is why is nobody on the press side of this, be it fans or people on tennis Twitter, be it members of the press, why have I not seen anybody really talk or come at this from the perspective of Naomi Osaka is a black woman first, an Asian woman first, right? Like right. Serena, you cannot have any meaningful discussion about either of them as it pertains to any issue without considering their race first. Right. And because Naomi put her hand up last year and said, I want to use my voice in this way, she is going to have to undergo repeated traumas, right? Having to relive George Floyd's death, being asked questions in very often not a very sensitive way, as we saw at the US Open last year, and having to talk about this stuff all the time. And that's something that I personally do not and cannot understand as a white person, what it's like being a black person and having to uh, explain, relive, teach systemic racism to people who don't get it. But that's something that Naomi does. And it's weird to for people to assume that the past is past, right? That she lived through it once. Why not do it again? These things can compound. That she wouldn't be asked about it this year, it being the one-year anniversary of George Floyd's death, like Howard Bryant pointed out, that her continued reliving of trauma, just because she brought it up, this was she did it. She She's responsible for us being able to ask this question because she gave us access to it, right? Mm. That's the thinking. But then she's expected to relive this trauma for spectacle, almost. Because it doesn't really have anything to do with her tennis. Right. I mean, sometimes it's written about in very interesting and productive ways and sometimes it's not right sometimes it's just for a tv soundbite or something one of the things that i'm getting at here is we have this concept and in many ways it's a concept now i'm veering more toward a myth of a free and fair press right and wrapped up in that is this ingrained right to be able to ask the questions to ask whatever you want because you deem it appropriate and so what we see is under the guise of we are the press this is journalism we need to protect the institution folks get cover for asking all manner of bullshit in press conferences coco goff today madness utter madness was asked you know why do you think people compare you and serena's because you're black and Some of the questions very often amount to, you're black, care to comment on that? Uh, Right, that's it. That's the only substance of the question. But, you know, my initial reaction to Naomi's statement, it was not, yes, queen. Like, that was not my gut reaction, right? And I'll tell you why in a little bit. But I want to continue talking about the press thing. Because I, you know, speaking as someone who has so much passion for journalism and, and its role in a semi-free to free society, I think that the press is not always a very good check on itself, right? So Mm -hmm. this is why newspapers often have public editors or omsbud persons who exist outside of the newsroom, 
right? There's a clear separation between the public editor and the people who make the news. And that's to sort of evaluate the ethics of how we do journalism. It's to check reporters and editors when they make mistakes. It's to ideally establish trust among your readership and and really to do journalism with integrity. Journalists themselves are often preoccupied with the the minutia of the job because it is a, a very difficult job. And there's all these sort of professional standards that have become law in sort of Anglo-American journalism. All these things about how we are supposed to do journalism, to be objective, to be fair, to not be overtly political. And so that guides how journalists do the job. But it doesn't help journalists be self-critical and critical of their fellow journalists, I think. Because they don't have to, because of the institutional laws that you just set forth. Right. right. It's And in any large institution like this, you get community, but sometimes you also get this circling of the wagons phenomenon that some journalists will defend other journalists for almost anything, right? Because it's like this brotherhood and sisterhood thing. It's like when comics say, I can ask anything, it's comedy. Right. And so this isn't to say, again, like like most journalists as a profession are not, they're not unethical actors. This is a very difficult job and a very important job, and you need independent checks and balances. Okay. Tennis does not have those independent checks and balances. Even the people who write for notable publications, they don't have a lot of those checks and balances anymore. The funding isn't there. Mm -hmm. What we have is a new tennis media. It's a relatively new landscape where the rules that you're talking about do not apply. That's not the reality of the situation anymore. Mm. And I, I've always argued, we both did, we both started undergrad as journalism majors. I've always argued that sport journalism in particular necessarily cannot follow those rules for it to be successful. There has to be some blending, some commingling of the editorial with the straight facts. Yeah, because sports journalism in many ways, functioned as promotion. Not only that, it its lifeline was storytelling mm. rather than a relaying of just what happened. Right. Like there's a certain necessary color that needs to be added to the prose in sport journalism for it to thrive. And I know a lot of folks disagree with this. A lot of folks who come from a strict journalism background dis- disagree with this. If we take it as a given that sports writing is kind of a, like a creative nonfiction, and there's nothing wrong with that, own it. Like what we see in practice is what we should be labeling it as. The other side of that is just like strict like match recaps, match re- and which, which nobody has any time for. I don't want to read that. Who who has time for that? Yeah. It, it requires so much of the press corps' time and energy to do those sorts of things, to go to press conferences, to get those quotes. And who is it serving outside of folks trying to feed the machine and feed themselves, right? Because that, that's what that's what pays, in a sense. And, you know, this is also a model that was made when the mainstream press was really important for promoting sports. The mainstream press could make or break athlete celebrities. And it's the landscape has changed quite a bit. So at this point, I think it's like it's valid to ask, what does the press conference accomplish? Whom does it serve? Are there ways that we can do it differently? And are you getting 
the stuff that readers want from press conferences. Mm -hmm. And I like the answer is not cut and dry. I think it's complicated, but it has become clear that you can cover the sport without press conferences. And there are really only a handful of athletes, of tennis players, who give the sort of insightful stuff to make that whole process worthwhile, that don't give you just rote answers, that aren't just feeding this machine mm. on on both ends. You right, know? right. And so I think we should feel free to criticize how journalism works as long as those critiques are in good faith and they're not sort of personal attacks. Like it's not something you've been holding onto because you hate this one journalist. There are clearly shortcomings with how tennis journalism operates. So let's think about those on a systemic level rather than a personal level. Because what I don't like is when I see fans sort of go after one particular journalist and I don't have like one person in mind, but they're like, well, you ask stupid questions I do. or you're mean <laughs> or you make my my player look bad. Flip it. If journalists all asked amazing questions, would you like them? Probably not. Because what do you define as an amazing question? Like a fan question? A, a player can do that on social media. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm shifting the focus back now onto journalists. <laughs> <laughs> because we've seen an unmass defense of themselves and their institution today against Naomi Osaka's statement mm -hmm. and her decision not to do press, right? It's been near universal with and, very little room for critique. And defense is the key word here because it was defensive, girl. Mm -hmm. Yes, I talked about this bit about creative nonfiction, which then kind of negates this shield that they put up with that you know, traditional definition of journalism that you were talking about before, right? Yeah. They, they weaponize that as a defense mechanism all the time. Meanwhile, some of these journalists are out here writing books on certain players and then segueing into becoming, in effect, a PR arm of that player. Yeah. But still maintaining that public facade of journalistic integrity and being incensed about what is going on. And what I want is not to denigrate that, that, that type of journalist, but to, for them to have some public self-awareness. Because listen, this is a situation where it ain't easy for people to make money as a tennis journalist. Like we can sit here and like kiki about this because we have like one or two toes in this water every year. Like we're, it's mm. not paying our bills and so you have to get creative in this tennis media landscape. Clinging to this idea of what journalism or tennis journalism is, is not helping anybody, is not helping reform the system, is not helping make it any better. Because currently what it is, is a whole ass struggle. Everybody's mm. out here on Patreon, on GoFundMe. You may think that there's that fancy byline in somebody's Twitter handle, but they're still freelance. They're not making that much money. Right, right. And so... It's not just the fans who are turning a blind eye, who, are, who, has, who have the wool over their eyes with looking at the situation. It's the journalists themselves as well in a lot of situations. This is why my first reaction to Naomi's statement wasn't celebratory. It was just sort of cautious because I knew the stuff that was going to come. What really bugs me is that although I know she didn't intend it, it some people read it as an invitation to roast the tennis press on moss and that goes to an ugly place very quickly it goes to this like 
lying press Trumpian place, even though those people wouldn't identify it that way. Like when you say the press corps is bad, how would you define a good press corps? And I'm not, I'm certainly not saying that tennis is doing a great job at this. I'm because, not saying that. Because even I'm, the good is is flawed in, in many ways. And the good, the good press corps is going to ask your faves really uncomfortable questions because they're not supposed to be, you know, your friend. That's not what journalism does. If you don't want that sort of adversarial relationship, are you going to get more of like a PR puff reporter core? And that's not really that interesting either because players can do that on their own. Is it interesting now? <laughs> no. No, I'm not saying it's good now. I'm just saying let's let's avoid that lying press impulse, that impulse to denigrate journalism in general, and use this productively instead. Because I think some fans view journalists as more powerful and privileged than they really are. Absolutely. And, you know, reporters have outsized power and influence because of their platform. But practically, tennis journalists are very often employed precariously or not employed at all. They're often paying their own way to tournaments. There are so few good newspaper jobs left around the world, especially covering tennis. So this is not exactly a glamorous job. It's a very mentally and physically taxing job. You know, not in the way that being a professional athlete is. But tennis reporters, for the most part aren't sitting here on massive salaries, eating caviar, complaining about your faves. Like, that's that's just not the reality. One of the realities is that because of the scarcity of resources, there's a lot of infighting. Yes. We personally have seen it specifically within the photographer section in, in press conferences, whereby uh, some folks are just really mean and protective <laughs> of their space and their... They're bred, essentially. Right, so this know? is a scarcity mentality. It is. Right? That's what breeds that sort of behavior. So there's this great defense of your of your right to do this job, but there's also, like, a lot of infighting. Yeah, yeah. Now, another kind of drawback that I want to throw out there is, and I think Howard Bryant mentioned this in his thread as well, what happens if players begin to withdraw from their press responsibilities completely? So what do you what are you left with, right? If you have a lot of privileged players who will pay the fines or can pay the fines if they want to, what are we sort of left with to represent our tennis players slash celebrities? And what it is is like they're gonna fill it in, right? They're gonna fill it in with their PR team, their management, their social media, and that might be fun for diehard fans, but over time it really becomes boring. Like, it becomes uninteresting because there's no challenge to the brand. It's pure brand management at that point. I think that is so overstated. These players are still going to be doing on-court interviews. They're still going to have to do some media engagements, whether it's on a more friendly term. Okay, fine. Mm -hmm. But, like, if we embrace the creative nonfiction part of journalism (laughs) and we say, okay, you don't want to tell us why... You let that lead go in set two and how you were able to turn it around in set three. I'll write it the way I see it. I may get like something from you, James. You tell me how you saw it. And like (laughs) something will still be generated. And those missing sentences from a tennis player, those two to three sentences will not adversely affect the regular reader. I feel like we are really being held completely captive by this adherence to old school journalism. I really do. Mm. Uh, that's fair. And I mean, I understand what you're saying. 
I just don't love, listen, I don't know how to say this because like this is not life and death, right? Uh, getting a tennis player's authentic opinion is generally not going to change the world. It might, but for the most part, it's this is pretty low level stuff, right? But I think I do think you miss something when a celebrity is their own brand manager and there's no kind of there's no one pushing them and challenging them with interesting questions. I think something is lost. It's not the end of the world, but fine. But you're also now presuming you're you're talking here under the presumption that the post-match press conference needs to be part of the equation. And the, fair enough. Just yeah. the way that we're talking about this, I'm we're setting up in like complete opposites on this issue when in fact we're probably more toward the middle but like I, I just want to push back against some of that yeah. because so much of the discourse against what Naomi said it supposes that the post-match press conference is absolutely necessary and I think that even if it is what's at stake here is and what's being challenged here is that maybe at the very least it needs to be reworked we can't be coming at this from a place of talking about it and arguing about it and getting all incensed about it without even considering that, well, hey, maybe there are things that need to be changed. Mm -hmm. And to be clear, you know, I'm kind of throwing out these things uh, as thought experiments. And it's really not about Naomi. Like I said before, we don't know anything about no. her, her mental state. And our opinion of this decision is completely irrelevant because the decision hath been made. Mm -hmm. Like, it's, you know, she has already removed herself. She said, I'm going to pay the fines. I'm not doing it. So these conversations we're having, while some of them are interesting, they're, they're not changing the things. Right, right. Um, but, so then it becomes what next? What is, yeah, because, what is the stuff that we really should be talking about. Yeah. What is it that she wants to talk about? Because Naomi clearly wants to change the system. I don't know if her fellow players agree or not, but she she thinks this is like more of a holistic thing going on. Well, by and large today, we saw, we saw her fellow players say, well, you know, I respect her opinion. I respect what she's doing. This is how I think, you know, whatever. Mm. It's, it, it's so strange that you see a big time provocative issue like this have such an even-keeled response from so many tennis players it's like they get it like yeah like tennis press conferences suck like if she wants to lose maybe a hundred thousand dollars doing this more power to her mm -hmm. but like i'm a suffer through right but rafa's like no that's my money uh, but you mentioned defensiveness earlier and a good example of this is that a lot of these players gave pretty full, thoughtful responses. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the tweets from tennis journalists omitted the ain't, parts ain't where the, the player said, I support Naomi's decision, but the tweets only included the but, that we need to do press conferences. And it was a bit disingenuous, and I think it highlighted uh, some of the problems that a player like Naomi might have with this process. What do you think? You mean when Christopher Clare tweets something... And then somebody screenshots that and then tweets with the screenshot of what was actually said and have them side by side. And you can see in real time how something can be completely misrepresented. Yeah. And, and not, in this, in this not case, him. not just him. Right. But in this case where that misrepresentation serves your own purposes. <laughs> right. 
and like it is it is wild i mean it's not uh it's not wise to have high standards for fandoms because fandoms are gonna like praise their their player no matter what they say but we should have higher standards for reporters especially when these are the ones who are considered to be some of the best we're not talking about ubaldo scanagato who quite frankly should not be in a press room ever again like you sit through slam after slam year after year of ubalda doing this kind of thing making sexist comments being completely inappropriate sleeping sleeping doing all these things and your response is to laugh it off well then how do you expect people to take you seriously now when you have been his gatekeeper in effect for all these years just because he's grandfathered in and part of the problem with that is that again tennis reporters don't really have any real power who is in charge of credentialing these tournaments? Exactly. And if you ask enough questions that people don't like, are you in jeopardy of losing your press credential to a certain tournament? If you write something critical about a sponsor or a tournament, are they going to credential you next year? Are they going to revoke your credential? These oh. are all very real fears of tennis journalists, mm-hmm. which is part of the reason I really bristle at that broad brush painting them as all unethical or unprofessional. Yes, I agree with you. Mm-hmm. I just don't want that broad brush to be a complete absolvent because sure. they've yeah, played yeah. their own part to some extent, some of them. Mm-hmm. Fine. But this also puts into relief yet another facet of the conflicts of interest in tennis. It's not just in the broadcast booth. It's not just with players being tournament directors, having brothers running tournaments, getting wild cards here, their left, right agencies, IMG at Miami only giving wild cards to IMG players. It's the way those conflicts kind of stifle the integrity and the creativity within the press room as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, so I th- I feel like we're nearing the end of this discussion. And what I am sort of left with is I'm not really interested in coming down with a this is good, this is bad, whatever opinion. I think it's a very important conversation to be had and it highlights just how fundamentally naomi osaka can change this game she is like a once in a generation figure in tennis who has the power to change how people think and actually make real material changes in how tennis works Mm -hmm. and those you know you can compare her to predecessors but we still have serena williams who is and was that still doing that Mm. playing so there's two of them existing right now and so it's almost like in in 20 30 years it's not all that interesting to say oh i agreed or i disagreed with this person or these micro decisions it's more interesting to think about like how will this be seen through the lens of history is this important you know did this person shift a paradigm what is that paradigm the, well, the, they, press, the press conference. Yeah, sure. That Do we could have be suggestions about how this can be done differently? In the first place, I think credentialing should be done by a completely independent body. I don't know how that looks, but it shouldn't have interests from within a tournament or within the leagues. For example, right now, we could probably be credentialed at any WTA event, but there's probably no chance in hell that we'll be credentialed at an ATP event. Or a slam. Yes. And part of that is because like we've we've... We've talked a lot of stuff that's detrimental to the brand. Oh, yes, we have torched. of the ATP. So if they are, so if they have direct responsibility for credentialing their tournaments, fair play to them to an extent. Yeah, but that that again is 
that's a a puppeteering of who gets to be in the press room. Yeah, because it's really not about us. Like, I actually don't care. It's about, oh, like, are members of the press beholden to a particular interest? Are they being, you know, are they self-censoring in a way? Because mm-hmm. you have to look out for your livelihood, right? So maybe the the many governing bodies could come together and outsource this and come to some agreement as to how how we can, like, maintain a standard of press going forward and the the trick with that is to then not rely strictly on on traditional media you can't just have print journalists you can't just have radio journalists it has been a good development in my mind and this is clearly self-serving that podcasts can be credentialed at tennis tournaments mm-hmm. at some tennis tournaments but not, was, not at the slams but there was so much resistance to blogs you yeah. know, and now blogs are like 15 years old or whatever, but... And there's still resistance to that, <laughs> to being credentialed. Yeah. My point is, if there's now a, a centralized credentialing body going forward, it has to be one that views all new media as having merit. Yeah. And you know what I just read? Because I get these Google alerts about golf now, because I like Brooks. <laughs> um, apparently, there's this massive like bonus pool in the PGA for players who generate social media interest. And so there's speculation that this feud between Brooks and Bryson DeChambeau is ginned up because they know they're going to generate a lot of social media interest and possibly get money. So anyway, the reason that I mentioned that is that there are a lot of creative ways and new media to generate interest in the sport. If that's the end goal of credentialing, to generate interest in the players, there are so many different ways to do it that's not the traditional outlets. Mm. We do not need to be ageist about it. Oh, no, because I love print newspapers. Not just in terms of being ageist against the type of media, but the type of of people in the media. Yeah, that's not what this is at all. No, but there's a place for them too. But you also must have in 2021 a place for as young an adult who is doing something worthwhile Mm -hmm. as possible. I'm not talking about having 16-year-olds running around in press rooms (laughs) being fanish, right? No, no, no. I'm talking about... Get people out here who are skilled in TikTok. Yeah. Do you know how how amazing a tool that is? That that could be if you could get people who are skilled in very new forms of media. Yeah, so it's still, uh, you know, you can still have professional standards and experiment with new types of media. Um, and the leagues use social media for PR purposes, but I'd love to see it used more widely for journalism. And you're seeing the old media catch up a little bit, but... But again, it's that scarcity of resources, right? Yeah, yeah. That that's what that boils down to. There's also there's already such a paucity of print and traditional media being profitable in tennis in general that to then create a space for new media, the ones who are in effect responsible in a way for its decline. You can see how that friction arises. Yeah, yeah, of course. To wrap up, we uh, definitely didn't hit every possible angle of this we don't have all the answers but i uh am curious to hear some of your responses uh as long as they're being made in good faith more specifically that was way way too broad a request (laughs) there james more specifically if you have any ideas about how the press conference can be reformed the press conference process can be reformed if, in fact, you think it needs to be. 
Oh my god, now we have to do draw previews, huh? We had intended to talk about some of the results from last week and maybe some of the tennis that was happening this week, but I feel like that will just have to fall by the wayside and yeah, we'll, we just we'll talk kinda, about the draws. We'll weave it in. Uh, uh, if you skipped ahead to this part using our timestamps, welcome to the body surf. We've talked about on previous shows that perhaps this will be one of the majors in, in recent times where players are most prepared than they've been in a while. Yeah. Even if that's not the case, I think it'll be one of the majors where we have the most people primed to make deep runs. You did a breakdown of all the players who've won on clay this spring, (laughs) and I can scarcely recall a time when we've had such varied winners. Right. We've had a very full clay season over the past few months, and... Although they were competing in unusual circumstances, players have been all over the world recently, and that European clay swing is back. It was completely decimated last year, but it's back. It'll be the first slam where players are preparing under more normal circumstances heading into a slam with respect to the pandemic. I feel like the the concerns that players would have had, say, Playing Australia this year, not so much the case heading into the French Open. Right. Late in the clay season, the ATP at least started to relax their bubble restrictions. So Benoit Paire will have to find something else to complain about. But things are getting a little bit more normal. Roland Garros was pushed back a week because France was in a pretty serious lockdown for a lot of the spring. And here we are. Rafael Nadal is going for a 14th Grand Slam title at the French Open. And if he achieves it, he'll become the all-time leader on the men's side with 21 Grand Slam titles. So that's at stake for him. Mm -hmm. He comes in as the number three seed, and he's fallen in Djokovic's half with Roger Federer as well. Daniel Medvedev, who hates clay, he'll tell anybody who will listen, he's on the bottom half as the number two seed. The top four seeds placed in the draw with Nadal Djokovic up top with Federer and then team and Medvedev being the numbers two and four seeds on the bottom half. Yes. So on the bottom half, you could get a finalist that makes complete sense. Like Tsitsipas, someone who has won two titles in the clay season, one of them being a super important Masters 1000. Or you could get a total surprise. You have a real opportunity on the bottom half to have a dark horse slip through, especially in that fourth quarter. In normal years... Dominic Team would be the huge favorite to get through that bottom half. He took some time off because he was mentally fatigued from dealing with COVID bubble travel in tennis. And upon his return, his results have been kind of spotty. Right. It's such an unusual season for someone like him who is normally so steady and over the past few years has been just steadily building and building on his results. Djokovic is currently playing that second Serbian tournament. He's in the final. He will head to Roland Garros sometime this weekend to begin the defense of his finals points. In the round of 16, he's slated to play the winner of Diminar and Goffin or Mossetti. I don't know. There are some interesting first rounds there. Djokovic-Sangren... I don't think will be a very interesting match, but no. is only notable for who it is. It really did not need to be. 
stated. <laughs> you're, you're grasping at straws uh, there. Tsonga is back with a buzzed head, and he'll be playing Nishioka in the first round. Musetti and Goffin is a, that's a really, really tough draw for David Goffin because I have Musetti as a dark horse here. Not, you know, not to win, but to make some noise because he's had some pretty impressive wins this clay season. But in that quarter, the players who have been playing well, it's really Djokovic. Travaglia has been playing well. He opens against Diminar. Matteo Berrettini, he has to be one to look at in that quarter. And even though mm-hmm. Roger Federer is there as well, who knows what to expect? Him coming back, this is the first time that he'll be playing best of five set matches and on clay. Felix Auger-Alessim is a big name, a big young name, but yet unproven on the big stage. And this would be the stage least suited to a breakout for right. him. So you could make the argument that Djokovic, shy of the quarterfinal round where he'll maybe play Berrettini, has a fairly decent draw. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Berrettini is obviously the one that sticks out here, having won Djokovic's home tournament in Belgrade, the first one, and then coming in as the runner-up in Madrid, which, you know, very different conditions, but still, he's had a great clay season. Federer, I mean, Roger is Roger, right? Like, he will come in and compete. We don't know what kind of form he is in. But he's gotten a typical top eight seed draw. He'll face the the 30 seed Taylor Fritz in the third round if he gets there. But then he also has Marin Cilic in the second round. Mm -hmm. And you may think, well, Cilic hasn't done anything really. But he's been playing, he's actually been playing better lately. So you have two players who, for varying reasons, aren't who they once were if we were looking at this draw, say, five years ago. But that's a potential throwback big clash in the second round in the second quarter that's where things get really dicey that's where Rafa Nadal is housed that's where Andre Rublev is those are the two top seeds in that quarter they would be slated to meet in the quarterfinals but before then there's also Nadal playing Alexei Popperin in the first round there's Mofis who's trying to get back some form opening against Ramos Vignolas, who's won a tournament on clay this yeah. spring. Mofis is seeded to face Rafa in the round of 16, but that's a really tough opener. Ramos just coming off the title on Estoril. Yannick Sinner is there to potentially play Nadal in the fourth round. Karatsev is there as well. And two-time titleist this year and alleged domestic abuser Nicolas Bachelasvili is there as well. Yeah, <laughs> had to mention that. But in this quarter, we have a few people who have won titles on clay this year. Uh, did you mention Lorenzo Sonego? No. Another player who's had an impressive clay season. It's tricky. And uh, we've seen this many times with Rafa, uh, with most of the top players, these draws that look very, very dicey. And then they don't exactly pan out as you think they are. Or they pan out like they did in Rome and he still wins. Right. Sonigo, if you recall, he made the semifinals in Rome, pushed Djokovic three sets in that semifinal, and beat Rublev that same day in the quarterfinals. So he's on a, a real upswing in his career. Yeah. Diego Schwartzman is there too, uh, but he's such a big question mark. 
He won the title in Buenos Aires a, a while ago, and since then, he has only had two wins on clay. So he won it before the traditional European clay season, but he's really performed poorly over the past few months. Except in the last week, he did well at UTS showdown. Right. Patrick's and it's hard to make conclusions from that. Mm. So leading into this tournament, you'd have maybe hoped for or expected the two best players on clay to meet in the final, being Nadal and Djokovic. That won't be the case here because they're slated to, to meet in the semifinals. And that, that is the top half of the draw. Well, there is an argument that the two best players on clay are Nadal and Tsitsipas. Sure. Who could meet in the final. Sure. Which takes us to the bottom half of the draw. Yeah. So third quarter, that guy, Alexander something, he's the number six seed right at the top there. Dominic team would be his quarterfinal opponent. Except one of the hottest players on clay, Kaspar Ruud, could have something to say about that. He yes. would play Dominic team in the round of 16. So it's potentially that guy against Kaspar Ruud in the quarterfinals. Uh, Dominic opens against Pablo Andujar, who uh, recently beat Roger Federer. The other seed in his section is Fabio Fognini. Uh, Martin Fucevic could be a landmine for him. Kaspar Ruud in the round of 16, who won in Geneva very recently. You also have Urkac, a Ruud-Urkac third-round match. You have Rude playing Benoit Pair in the first round, which could uh, produce a lot of dramaticing. Right. Maybe not good tennis, but certainly good theater. I think that uh, Kane Nishikori is a dark horse here. He could play Karen Hachanov in the third round. Hachanov has been struggling with form, uh, but has like slightly improved recently. You've also got Bautista Agut there. Yep. Dan Evans is there. You could have that guy playing Dan Evans in the third round. I guess you could have that guy playing that guy in the third <laughs> round. <laughs> There's a lot of opportunity, yeah. is the bottom line. If everything goes to form, according to Seeds, Dominic Team would be the semifinalist in that quarter. And it would be a disservice to count him out, considering his recent history at Roland Garros. In the final quarter, that's headlined by number five seed Stefanos Tsitsipas with... Daniel Medvedev right at the bottom of the men's draw. Yeah. One of the questions here will be, how many matches will Medvedev win? Yeah, this is a really interesting quarter. Because aside from Tsitsipas, there is such a huge opportunity for somebody to break through and make a quarter or a semi. I know we're looking at the same person. Oh, Sam Query? Your bay, Christian Garin. <laughs> I, I was kidding. Uh, but the, beauty, and... the beauty about Sam Quare is that he will play John Isner in the first round. So we get that out of the way yeah. right away. One of them is gone right away. I'm sure some people will watch that. I certainly will not. But Isner would be Tsitsipas's third round opponent. We have, you know, we have third rounds with Raonic and Pablo Carreño Busta. I don't know who's going to make it out of there. Another All-American matchup, Steve Johnson and Francis Tiafo. Who knows, maybe Francis breaks through and gets to the third round over Milos. But in that final section now, maybe it's Grigor Dimitrov. He opens against Marcos Giron in the first round. Dimitrov would play Garin in the third round, potentially. And that's where it opens up then, because then you would potentially play Medvedev in the fourth round. And we don't know if that will happen. So there's, there's actually, in this 
fourth quarter, so many trees who could make a deep run. There's yeah. Opelka. There's Medvedev. I mean, you kind of have to consider him a tree as well. He's super tall. No. There's Raonic. Nobody's talking about Milos Raonic. There's Isner. All players, especially since Opelka made that semifinal in Rome, all players now who've had some success, maybe not a lot of success, but some success on clay at some point. Yeah, yeah. And this is definitely the serve bot section. But I think someone like Opelka has a great chance to build on this confidence that he produced in Rome to make it to, who knows, the quarterfinals. Christian Garin actually has a clay title under his belt this season at home in Santiago. I think he has to be considered the favorite over Grigor Dimitrov if they meet. It's also the quarter of the draw that has Sebastian Korda. Korda would be the second round opponent for Tsitsipas. So should Tsitsipas mm-hmm. beat Jeremy Chardy in the first round? Maybe, <laughs> maybe this is a section where some American man comes through. There's so many of them. There's <laughs> Sebastian Corda, Sam Query, John Isner, Steve Johnson, Francis Tiafo. Oh, Tommy Paul is down there. Marcos Giron is in there. Mackenzie McDonald, Riley Opelka, Tommy Paul. A lot of Americans in that quarter of the draw. But as you said, the 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 favorite to make the semifinals and pretty much the big favorite to make the semifinals from this section is Stefano Tsitsipas. Yeah, yeah. The winner in Monte Carlo, the winner last week in Lyon. Did you hear what he said today? No. You didn't hear what Tsitsipas said today? Can you tell me? It looks like he was in his Roland Garros pre-tournament press. And he said, I have this quote that I created six years ago and I stand by it. And what he's really doing is stealing somebody else's thoughts again. He is the quote thief, is oh what God, I Stefano just, Tsitsipas I It's just George Bernard it. Shaw. Do you think it's really George Bernard Shaw, or that's like what the internet has credited? I don't know. Bottom line is, that is not original. I didn't even have to know who it was really credited to, to know he didn't come up with that. Oh my lord. Like... For the number of cease and desists that Stefanos has been issued on the internet for plagiarizing people, you would think that he would not be doing this anymore. But he he's unstoppable. He's unbothered and unstoppable. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. There was a book published in 2016 called Don't Wait for an Opportunity, Create It by S. Baker. Is Stefanos positing that this person stole his quote and titled their book with his quote? Or maybe that was a ghost name. That that's a, what do you call it, a pseudonym? That that's yeah. actually Stefano's who a wrote that book? A de plume? Whoa. That, I mean, that is brazen. To do that in a press conference. <laughs> to be so specific, six years ago I created this and I stand by it. Madness. <laughs> the woman's draw. I think we are going into this Roland Garros with some very clear favorites on the women's side. I would say there are probably two that are far and away the favorites. And that would be Ash Barty and Iga Sviantek, who also happen to be the two most recent winners of Roland Garros. 
who happened to be drawn in the top half of the draw and could meet in the semifinals. Yeah. So I would also put Sabalenka as a third favorite, but I think there is a big gap. And the reason I think there's a big gap is because, first of all, the conditions are very, very different from where she won in Madrid. And also because she hasn't proven that she can do this yet at a major. And when she does it, it will be proven. But it hasn't been proven yet. A lot of folks are running away on the Coco Golf train after she won the singles and doubles titles in Parma a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, we are, man, she had a great week, though. We are happy to watch that train, but we will not be boarding. <laughs> if we see that train pull into the station, we'll be there to receive it. But we, <laughs> we will not be there for that ride. Yeah, I mean, you know, she beat her countrywoman Anisimova, Kai Kanepi, Siniakova, and Wang Chong in Parma to win the title. She made the top 30 for the first time. She's seated at a major and, you know, just for, for kicks, won the doubles with her partner, Katie McNally. Mm. This top half has so many players that could go so deep into this tournament. And a couple of them, unfortunately, because of injury, we're maybe a little bit less bullish on their chances than we normally would be. A couple months ago, we would have been singing Garbinia Muguruza's praises to the Roland Garros gods ahead of this tournament, but we don't know what to expect. Right, right. Same goes for Karolina Muhova. She's coming off injury concerns and a semi-final appearance at the Australian Open. We don't know what to expect. So those two are square wild cards. Muhova in the first quarter, Muguruza in the second quarter. There's also Petra Martic on that half. There's Kantavate on that half, Jessica Pagula. There's the finalist from last year, Australian Open champion in 2020, Sophia Kennan, who is playing her first slam without her father as her coach. We don't know if that situation has been settled, that coaching situation. And look who she draws in the first round. Someone who lives to create chaos, Yelena Ostapenko. Kennan has had a string of losses since Miami. There's also... Elena Svitolina, there's Alexandrova, there's Jennifer Brady, there's Ange Jabor. Yeah, this is a great group in Ash Barty's section. She's got Ange Jabor possibly in the third round. Jabor was the runner-up in Charleston number two, the runner-up to Astra Sharma. Coco Goff, the, uh, as we said, the champion in Parma, the uh, top 30 debutante, and Jennifer Brady, who is number 13 seed. The semifinalist who lost to Naomi Osaka last year in the U.S. Open. And so... And then in the final of the Australian Open this year. Oh, yes. How could I forget? I don't know. <laughs> you know, I really had to think long and hard about who won Miami this year. I know now, but I, it took me a while. But my point is that these are these are not impossible, but they are tough outs for Barty. And if she's going to win this title again, I almost said defend this title because... She's still holding on to points from 2019. But if she's going to win the title again, this is a reasonable road that you're going to have to travel. And if you get to the semifinals, look who's waiting. Iga Svantec, last year's winner, who just loves to beat these other players with breadsticks and bagels. <laughs> Svantec coming off that fantastic Rome run, the complete demolition. I think that's what you were referring to most yes. specifically yes. and more recently. 
the complete demolition of Karolina Pliskova in the Rome final, and also coming back to the site of her original demolition nine months ago. <laughs> right. So uh, I, I think maybe this half is such a perfect screenshot of the parity that we talk about on the WTA tour. Because if you go by seeding, any of those third round players could make the final. Yeah, and I think we're in a really good space here because we have a lot of quality like down the ranks, but there are also clear favorites. Like there are clear stars here. First round matchups to watch in this top half. Julia Putintseva against Anjabur. Coco Goff against a resurgent Alexander Krunic, who kind of disappeared for a while. Uh, she's making her way back on tour. Wang Chung against Shea Suwei. Sevastova against Jennifer Brady. Karolina Pliskova against Dana Vekic. That one is not easy. Oh, yeah. That's a tough one. Carla Suarez Navarro makes her Grand Slam return after her battle with cancer. She plays Sloane Stevens, who too is playing better recently. Yeah. It's just amazing that Carla is back at all. I- I'll be glued to that match, definitely. Andrea Petkovic plays Mukova in the first round. And then... Venus Williams, she's in this very first quarter of the draw, slated to play number 32 seed, Ekaterina Alexandrova. Uh, I mean, yeah, Venus is not seeded. If you're going to pull a seed, the 32 is kind of the best you can do. Um, Venus hasn't won a match in a while. No, so not this since is, Australia. You know, <laughs> for she... a long time, I would pick Venus in my draws to go further than was reasonable, but... You know, at this point, a win would be a pleasant surprise. She's having time and time again incredibly slow starts to her matches. Mm. In Strasbourg, she lost the first set and the first few games easily to Serana Kirstea, was able to turn it around, win that second set fairly convincingly 6 2, and then a couple unforced errors at inopportune times, and then she's behind the eight ball again. Kirstea, for her part, is currently in the Strasbourg final, attempting mm-hmm. to win her second tournament of the year. Yeah. In the prior event in Parma, Venus was down. We talked about this on the last episode. She was down 5-2. And then in that first set, that slow start I'm talking about, and then was able to actually win that first set. This is against Shmidlova, her longtime yeah. bugaboo. Yeah. So what we're seeing is a, a struggle to maintain bouts of form for long periods there's still game there clearly um but we'll see if she's able to find it i mean i'd like to go through this top half and tell you what the quarterfinal matchups would be by seed but i don't even know if that's useful <laughs> right. at this point kennan is the four seed uh we mentioned that she'll be playing ostapenko in the first round but sophia hasn't won a match since miami and i mean she hasn't been losing to duds you know, she lost to Krejcikova in Rome, who is now in the final in Strasbourg. But she's not playing at anywhere near her standard. And this will be the first time we get to see her with a, a coach other than her dad. So I think there are a lot of question marks around her. That leaves a big opening for someone like Pagula, Sakari, Elisa Martins, who reached the final in Istanbul earlier this year. I think one of my dark horses here is Soribos Tormo, 
And normally I would say that Muguruza was an easy, you know, like a walk to the, at least the round of 16 here. But her form has just been a little bit questionable since returning from injury. And Iga Sviantek looms in that section of the draw. I think they played in the round of 16 in Dubai earlier this year. And here, if they went through, Muguruza and Sviantek would play in the round of 16. Yeah. The bottom half. This is where Miss Serena Williams is. She's been in France and Italy between the two for a long time now, practicing. Patrick Moratoglu has been releasing pretty much daily TikTok videos on Serena's practices. We know that she's putting in the work. We just don't know if it will translate at Roland Garros. Right. We have not seen it pay off in one of the previous tournaments yet. As you know, I mean, we're, what, 25 years into this? You never know what Serena is going to do at a major, even if her form beforehand isn't that great. She's definitely trying. But the draw gods didn't, they didn't give her the easiest, but they did not give her the hardest draw either. It's perfectly fine for what it is. Yeah. So, you know, Kerber could be the third round. We have... Well, she opens against Begu. Mm-hmm. Which is going to be annoying, but is a match that she can win. Rybakina, who flourished before the quarantine last year, but has struggled since, Rybakina could play Petra Kvitova in the third round, and the winner of that would play, you know, Serena or Kerber or who knows, Daniel Collins. Daniel Collins. Collins. <laughs> I'm, I'm yep. sitting here, you're saying, oh, Serena gets Kerber in the third round. I'm like, um... Well... Well... Danielle could beat Kerber. Listen, Danielle could beat that's Serena. the one to look at in that section. Collins-Kerber rematch. Oh, yes. All the commands. And elsewhere in that quarter, we have Vika, Miss Anti-Smoking Vika Azarenka. I'm telling you, like, in the midst of all this <laughs> Naomi Osaka discourse that's dominating mm. the internet on tennis Twitter, Victoria Azarenka is out here to tell you what she stands for, and that is anti-smoking. You know what's the one thing that is actually detrimental to everybody involved? <laughs> It's smoking. It was so random. Like. But, you know, that's Vika. That's Vika. That's what I have to say about that. Um, Layla Fernandez is in that little section. She could play Madison Keys in the second round. If Madison gets through, she could play Vika or who knows? Svetlana Kuznetsova in the third round. Vika and Svetlana face off in the first. Don't overlook that this is the main draw return at a Grand Slam for Elena Viznina. She opens against Olga Govortseva in the first round, mm-hmm. the winner of that match, to play Petra Kvitova, potentially. Oh, and don't forget, one of your new faves, Clara Towson. I haven't, I have it. It's right there. Azarenka Towson, <laughs> second right? round, asterisks all around it. Towson was a titleist on hardcourt earlier this year, right? Mm-hmm. It seems like centuries ago. But she could play the winner of Azarenka Kuznetsova in the second round. And then, of course, the other main headliner in the third quarter is Arena Sabalenka. Number three seed, the winner at Madrid, a very difficult out for anyone. Serena beat her in Australia. Including herself. Exactly. Like, she could... I, I mean, I could honestly see her going all the way to the final... Or see her lose in the the second or third round. In I have the first, no idea. In the first round to Anaconya. 
Well, I I mean, I wouldn't go that far. but I would go that far. Okay. It's a tough, tough first draw. Pavlyuchenkova is not an easy third round. In the final quarter of the, of the draw. Okay, now this. This is the, I don't know, what the hell. I have it written here, wide open fourth quarter. And there are lots of gaps where I just couldn't even fill in anything. Andrescu, she played two matches in Strasbourg. And then she was like, you know, I what did she say? She said, thanks, love. I'm good. <laughs> On to Paris. That's a, a paraphrase from your own mind. It is. But Bianca came back, played for the first time in many, many months earlier this year, got to the Miami final, had to retire. And since then, it's been it's been COVID. It's been withdrawals. It's been very questionable. Withdrawals because of not being able to travel because of COVID, not wanting to quarantine. But a lot of different things are going on. So Bianca is a massive question mark, especially since she could play the new clay princess. Maria Camila Osorio Serrano. It, that's in the second round. So who makes the third round? I have no idea. Who makes the third round between Kudermatova, Anisimova, Boskova, Siniakova? No idea. You could feasibly see any of those make it. The One of the big dark horses here for me is Dasha Kazatkina. Mm-hmm. Kiki Bertens, we haven't seen much from her since she's come back from injury. Maybe she's found some form. I don't know. She is a wild card dark horse if she can get some form going. Because yeah. there's opportunity here. See, some players here are going to benefit from... Other players whose rankings are artificially enhanced because of points from 2019. Who are you throwing shade at right now? And I'm I'm not name saying that names. to be shady, but... Okay, but name names. Kanta, Bencic, Burtons, right? Bencic is the 10 seed. Burtons is the 16 seed. You know, Naomi is the number two. Vondrosova is a 20 seed. She hasn't been doing that well. Right. So you've, you've weeded out some great players because these players are seeded. I mean, some of these unseeded players in here, it's almost like facing a seed is a blessing because these seeds haven't been playing that well. Mm. We shall see. You know how you love to talk about playing the week before a slam and Serana Kirstea is in a final heading into Roland Garros. So the fact that she opens up against Johanna Kanta, maybe your your past prophecies will come true. I don't know. <laughs> no, I mean, I will say that that is my typical position, but this is a pandemic and things are very strange. So I do understand players wanting to kind of stay sharp, stay mm. warm that the week before a major this year. Maybe mm. not every year. Bencic opens up against Podoroska, who was a semifinalist at Roland Garros last mm-hmm. fall. We have Trevisan in the same section who was a quarterfinalist at that same tournament. Chaos Queen, Alizé Cornet, is there as well. Right, uh, Danka Kovinich, who was the runner-up in Charleston number one. And Marquette de Vondrosova, the runner-up to Ash Barty in 2019. And Naime Osaka. Right. <laughs> Did we mention the number two seed? I, f- I felt like maybe we talked about Naomi enough, you know, in the first uh, segment of the show. But, right, but that's why this section is such a wild card. Because it, Naomi is the number two player in the world. She's just coming off two Grand Slam wins in a row. But what is she going to do here? We have no idea. Paula Badosa slots into her section now because of the uh, 
the withdrawal of somebody. I forget who it was, mm. but oh, so she's the number thirty-three seed. She's the number she's thirty-three really the 32. seed. Correct. But there is a thirty-two. Oh. Venus is playing her. Oh, this is confusing. Do you know what I mean? Like, so okay. S- so somebody who was ranked in the top thirty-two <laughs> mm-hmm. withdrew, and so a lucky loser takes that spot. But Badosa fills the seed the, the seed yeah. spot yeah. in that section. Okay. So although this is the number thirty-three seed to face the number two. Badosa is flying high off her win in Belgrade. So Osaka potentially plays Badosa in the third round. She opens against Patricia Maria Zig in the first round. You would think if she's healthy and she is of clear mind that that's still a winnable match for her. Mm-hmm. A clear-headed Osaka should get to the third round here. I mean, if this draw falls apart, you could easily see her in the semis. We, But again, like... Because you haven't seen it at Roland Garros, it's a harder to visualize. Mm. It will happen, but maybe this year, maybe not. Andrescu had two clean matches in Strasbourg. If she's healthy, she could do the business here. Mm-hmm. There's no reason not to believe it. Kazatkina, Kudimertova, Anisimova, uh, folks are not paying any attention to her. Osorio Serrano. There are so many people here. Maybe Caroline Garcia, the other player right. who had the high-profile split with her dad outside of Kennan. Maybe this is a come-to-Jesus moment for her mm-hmm. in her career. And you know what? Maybe Kaya Kanepi will show up to say, screw all of you. Mm-hmm. She, I'm going to beat Vondrosova in the first round. Listen, she's made quarterfinals at the French Open before. So it's, it's really anybody's game. Uh, quarterfinals, that third quarter, maybe, maybe... If you go by seed, it's Serena Sabalenko. Maybe, but who knows? And then if you go by seed in the fourth quarter, it's Andrescu and Osaka, which I I think we could put a lot of money on that not happening. Andrescu, <laughs> Osaka. But I won't. We really only talked about two main things on this episode. The mm-hmm. Naomi Osaka withdrawing from press requirements this week. And uh, the draws. Yeah, I think for a Grand Slam preview, that's a pretty good bang for your buck. You know, Two things? Yeah, two things. <laughs> They're two important things. Okay. Um, one quick note, though. We did notice on, on Twitter was brought to our attention that, what's his name, Petros? Tsitsipas? Petros? Petros. Are you joking? I'm... No, I'm it's not... Petros. Petros. It's... I don't know his oh, first name. I thought you were being shady. I was not being shady. Petros Tsitsipas has um, a very special bio on his Instagram. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is it? He's written the letters WC on his bio, which stands for wildcard. I guess poking fun at the people who poke fun at him for benefiting from his brother's success? Dude, <laughs> that's not just what he did. He put proud wildcard king Oh, then why did you ask me to explain it? Proud WC and then the king emoji. The crown. The crown, yeah. King. <laughs> He's the proud wildcard king. Like, okay. Okay. You do you. Um, I mean, weird flex? Funny flex for us? Maybe. Not funny for the people who don't get wildcards. On that note, uh, my name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR on Twitter. We didn't even mention making predictions on this episode. No. It's the first time it's, we've 
No, wait, we don't need to go into the diatribe about why we don't. We, we give that every time, and then we make some predictions of mm-hmm. some sort, even if it's like just semis or whatnot. But we did none. That's all, wow. I'm, that's all I'm highlighting. Proud. You said your name? Yep. We are the body serve at the body serve. Just Google at the body serve and you'll find whatever is relevant to your interests. Thanks for listening. Till next time.